Welcome, everybody. Good to see you all, and we're going to get going. My name is Ryan Miller. I am the founder and co-director of Brew Theology. Janelle is the other co-director over here, and welcome to Altruist. I, I can't tell you how excited I am about today. For those that do know me and you know my excitement level, I, I, what's going on inside is even more exciting. You know, I'm, I'm pumped about today. I've been pumped for months about this, and... Um, so just, just kind of give you guys a little bit overview about what we're going to do today. We are going to have three different Abrahamic speakers at the beginning of uh, the morning come up, individually give their talk. They'll have a panel up here. You will have sheets of paper and pen to write down your questions. There's also a reference guide with the Religion 101. So Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, it's all on there for the morning. So it's a reference guide for you to ask the questions when they are speaking. And Janelle and I will collect those questions, and then we will moderate a panel before lunchtime. And then we're going to do the other Eastern religions in the afternoon. Same thing. And then we'll end the day with uh, brewing theology because that's what we do. Our community every Thursday night is we brew theology across an interfaith spectrum. And we create what we think are these really healthy, meaningful communities where people actually uh, get along at the end of the night. And so uh, restrooms over here beer over here, gluten-free options and non-alcoholic beverages, thanks to Janelle, are over here. Yeah. Thank you, Janelle. Uh, it's, you know, there's always got to be that one person who's like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? That's Janelle. So thank you, Janelle, for that. So uh, altruist, let's start with altruist. It's a noun, and it's a person who's unselfishly concerned for or devoted to the welfare of others. Then we have an altruist. It is a happier person, <laughs> unselfishly concerned or devoted to the welfare of others while drinking beer. So Seedstock Brewery has provided beer over here. But let me just add this. If you do not drink alcoholic beverages, you can still be happy. We actually have a coffee and tea chapter that meets here in Platte Park on Fridays. And we have, if you notice, there's stickers with coffee and tea. If you don't drink coffee and tea, we have other options as well. Yeah, I think there's even Mountain Dew in there if you're into Mountain Dew. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy today, and people will be coming in freely throughout the day since this is a five-hour event as well. Some of our speakers may have to leave at a certain time. If you have any questions, I can maybe somehow, I'm not going to promise, get you connected with them. I don't know if they want to hand out their emails, but we'll see. Uh, and so before we begin, before I bring up the first speaker, I just want to start off by a word that Janelle and I keep coming back to. I think this is a part of our community and the communities that we surround ourselves with, that we collaborate with, and it's a simple word called peace, okay? Uh, Salem in Arabic, shalom in Hebrew. If you're of other traditions, you may chant om, shanti, 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 om, that invocation of peace that uh, speaks to the, the mind, speech, and the body. And for those who are of no religion at all, you, I have a lot of atheists and agnostic friends, you would say, yeah, you know, the, the, the essence of who we are also comes down to peace, okay? All these religions, the, the common ground is that word peace, wholeness, all, all things as they should be. And yet in our world today, as you all know, it's a divided world. All you have to do is right now go on social media, go on any public thread that talks about politics or religion, and you will see that we are extremely toxic, that we don't know how to deal with any kind of differences in particulars, right? Um, and yet at the end of the day, we're like, oh, we do want this thing called shalom. Now, this little piece of art right here, it's tiny. You can look at it later. 
To me, this is a picture of what the Jewish people call tikkun olam. And maybe Brian will come and talk about that a little bit later. It's about fixing and repairing the world. And so the Middle East, war-torn country, Palestinians and Jews have been fighting for years. And I hope that we can actually deal with that tension in here today and talk about that during the panel. And so there was a man a couple decades ago that noticed all the car bomb glass along the streets of Bethlehem. He also noticed all the destitute women of different faith backgrounds, and they didn't have uh, much dignity at all. So he, he had this idea that he would empower these women to begin picking up this broken glass from car bombs and begin to make art like this as an act of tikkun olam with sustainable income for these women and just also showing the world that, yeah, you know, out of, out of the chaos and the war-tornness of the world that we live in, there can be this thing called peace, okay? Now, this is my picture of tikkun olam. I don't know what your picture is in your world. We're going to have different speakers talk about maybe their picture. Uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, another uh, prominent 20th century philosopher, probably one, my, one of my favorites, he said this. He said that the world is torn by conflicts, by folly, and by hatred. Our task is to cleanse to illumine and to repair. That's the tikkun olam. Every deed is either a clash or an aid in the effort of redemption. Our task is to bring eternity into time, to clear in the wilderness a way, to make plain in the desert a highway for God. That's a beautiful thing. Social media, uh, it, it's, it, uh, it can be a beast, right? You've seen, the, you've seen the meme where a Jew, an atheist, a Christian, a Muslim, they walk into a bar yeah, and they, they talk, they drink beer, and it's not a joke. It's what happens when you're not an asshole. You, y'all, you've seen this meme before. I love it. It's funny. It's great. I don't think it goes far enough. So what about, instead of that, you say a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Sikh, a Hindu, a Buddhist, an agnostic, an atheist, a Republican, a Democrat, somebody who loves Bernie Sanders and somebody who loves Donald Trump. Can I say that? All come together because they are friends They are friends who actually believe in this shalom, this peace on earth, building community, and maybe even especially if they disagree with one another. Yeah, a little bit bit better, isn't it? So, and and I feel like in these interfaith circles, um, yeah, there are particulars. You're going to hear particulars with the different faith identities, and and even as you circle up in your your own tables as well, but yet there is that common ground. There is that that underlying source of peace and that shalom. So I want to, I want to, just before Amanda comes up here, in with these words from Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. And I think that these words are um, an, an indicative sort of uh, presence of who we are and who these other groups are as well, regardless of your religion. He says this, he says, we have to appreciate that truth can be received from outside of, not only within our own group. If we do not believe this, entering into dialogue would be a waste of time. If we think that we monopolize the truth, and we still organize a dialogue, it is not authentic. We have to believe that by engaging in dialogue with the other person, that we have the possibility of making a change within ourselves, that we become deeper. Dialogue is not a means for assimilation in the sense that one side expands and incorporates the other into itself. Dialogue must be practiced on the basis of non-self. We have to allow what is good, beautiful, and meaningful in the other's tradition to transform us in the other's tradition. Lots of traditions in this room right now. Lastly, he says that we have different roots. We, have, we all have different roots, traditions, and we have different ways of seeing, but we share the common qualities of love, understanding, and acceptance. The most precious gift that we can offer others is our presence. 
When we're mindful, touching deeply the present moment, we can see and we can listen deeply. And today, it's time for us to listen deeply. So in an act of peace, I would invite you all as we start to turn to the people around you, if, if you can. I know introverts hate this kind of stuff. As an extrovert, I still don't get that. But if, if, you, could, if you could give this posture and this saying of namaste, uh, which is a greeting, um, and it is to say that uh, I see the light inside of you. Uh, I recognize it as the same light inside of me, and I, and I honor that light. So if you could turn to your neighbor, you might not want to say namaste. You can say peace. But if you would do that right now before we begin, that would be fantastic. Turn to your neighbor and say namaste or peace. So it is in that posture of namaste that we're going to bring up our first speaker. And this person's very special to us, uh, specifically to Brew Theology, because it was about three years ago, I think, uh, Amanda and I, we met, and she connected me to other amazing interfaith speakers uh, around uh, this city. And the work that she does through the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, I'm sure she'll talk about it in a little bit, uh, is it's good for our city and it's good for our state. And the proceeds, by the way, for the tickets are going toward Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, the table, and Urban Peak. And so, Amanda, you're a fantastic leader in Denver. We're honored to have you here. We have the executive director, Amanda Henderson. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan. I think it was almost four years ago, maybe. I don't know. It's a long time. Um, I'm so grateful to be here um, with everyone today. I am at the tail end of a case of bronchitis, so if I sound terrible, that's why, or if I need to stop and drink water, that's why. Um, I'm... I love watching the way that this community has grown and the work that you're doing. And I tell people about you all and the ways that um, people are living. Um, for me, I am a Christian pastor in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ is where I'm ordained. And it's fun to see the different ways, the ways that people are living and thinking creatively about, for me, the Christian church in the 21st century. Um, and I think that this is it. You all get it. It's fun. Um, I want to also introduce Tamara. Will you raise your hand? Um, we This is Tamara Boynton, and Tamara works with us at the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. She's just started a couple weeks ago and is working as uh, organizing our congregations. So uh, I'm going to tell you a quick snippet about the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado, and then I'll go into Christianity, um, and I'll watch the clock. So the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado has been around, we're in our 21st year as an organization. Our office actually used to be just a couple blocks away at Cameron Methodist Church for about the first 19 years of our existence. And we are a group uh, who brings together people from multiple religious traditions who are each deeply rooted in their tradition and open to one another and committed to coming together grounded in our shared values around human rights and equality to do work in the community. Most of our work is around education, advocacy, and catalyzing change. So our education work happens both around, we wind up getting asked a lot to do education around different religions, but our primary thing that we do education about is different social justice issues um, that are all rooted in human rights and equality. Um, and that's what our advocacy looks like, advocacy at the state capitol. Last night, our uh, legislative session ended here in Colorado, so we are very active in the legislature in Colorado. 
um, doing, uh, helping work with coalitions, helping lead on different bills, uh, helping bring people who are rooted in faith to come and speak and tell their stories in hearings um, at the Capitol. We help people understand how to be involved in the legislative process and how to be engaged citizens. Um, we also do that out at the city level. Um, we were at the Denver City Council meeting on Monday night until 1130. And we're, we're reaching out and helping um, people in faith communities know how to be um, advocates in their community for the values that they care about. Um, and that brings me to the catalyzing change piece. Everything we do is about standing with those who are marginalized, working to assure that all people have rights, equality, freedom, and opportunity to live the life that they want to live. So for us, those issues wind up being around um, religious freedom slash non-discrimination. We do work around LGBTQ rights and equality. We do work around reproductive rights, health and justice. We do work around homelessness, economic justice, predatory lending, racial equity, criminal justice reform, just to name a few. So it's easy. We have no real issues, no conflicts, you know, (laughs) especially in this time, you know, there's just no real issues. So we mostly just hang out and have lunch. Um, Really, it has been an intensive time for us as an organization over the past couple years. We have been on the front lines doing a lot around um, speaking out and making sure that those who are experiencing a lot of um, hate and vitriol and division are are with that we're standing with them in solidarity and that we are acting to assure that our laws and policies um, protect specifically those who are most often marginalized and excluded. Um, some of our catalyzing change projects have been that we helped launch the tiny home village, the beloved community village. Um, our role in that was it, through our work standing in solidarity with folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, we originally started addressing the criminalization of homelessness and then started saying we need alternative ways to uh, address homelessness rather than just sweeping people into the shadows. And, and so we need housing that's fast, easy, Um, And so we brought together people from the city, foundations, homeless advocates, service providers uh, to start thinking, how do we change the zoning laws? How do we raise the money? How do we push through the community to make different ways of addressing homelessness possible? So that resulted with lots of work in the tiny home village that's been in Rhino for the past couple years. And then if you followed that at all, it's going to be moving to Globeville um, this month. And we're hoping to continue to grow that. Uh, That has become its own nonprofit. And we see ourselves as catalyzers, as bringing people together, living deeply into our way of being grounded in relationship and making things happen which is a great transition into me talking about Christianity. So, um, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. Tamara can talk to you about the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado because she's just like slid right in. (laughs) Um, And I've got cards and things and I can share more about that later. Uh, Christianity. Raise your hand if you have rooting in the Christian faith of some sort. So this is, I have the hardest one because like everybody knows everything about Christianity, right? That's way less exciting than Hinduism. Ved's going to 
excite you all. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do is share a little bit. I, I put together a top 10 things about Christianity that I want you to know, um, even as people who know about Christianity or who have been seeped in Christian culture, because we have no choice here in this country to be seeped in Christian culture, even when you're not a practicing or believing Christian. Um, so first my story, I grew up with parents that were rooted in the Baptist tradition. Mostly my father grew up in a Southern Baptist home. My mother, um, I say was a child of a abusive alcoholic, um, and rebelled from that and went to church and met my dad in a Baptist church. And so they were very young and started all in, in the Baptist church. And then something happened. Um, as does, I don't know, who's been in a church and had drama? Uh, raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> Some drama happened, and my parents were young, and they said, we're out. Um, we don't want anything to do with this kind of drama. And and so my family didn't really go to church very often growing up, uh, except when I was at my grandparents, and then I would go to a Baptist church. But I always felt deeply spiritual. I always felt deeply connected to God, and I always felt curious and everyone I knew was Christian. So I honestly didn't really know, you know, too many other options. Um, I knew what I didn't want. And I went to high school in North Colorado Springs. So it was really easy for me to decide what I didn't want. And um, I rejected a lot of that, but also still felt this longing and this connection and this curiosity. So I wound up... Um, Actually, after the birth of my first child, uh, just over 17 years ago, my husband and I were driving home from the hospital um, with our baby in the car seat, like literally, you know, 48 hours old. And we drove past this church and we said, oh, we did our premarital counseling with that guy. Um, we really liked him. We should check that out. We have a baby now. It's time to go to church. And, <laughs> and so we did, like four days later, and, <laughs> and never looked back. And we walked in, and it was a disciples congregation, and there was a lay woman preaching, and she was preaching a sermon titled, Who is God? And we looked at each other and said, you can ask that question here, and there's a woman preaching. We like this already. And, and so we kept going, and we kept learning, and we kept growing, and asking questions, and leading groups, and you know, followed the rabbit hole. And then now all of a sudden I'm an ordained clergy person <laughs> and um, we wound up moving our whole family so I could go to seminary like 10 years after that. Um, so my way, my path into Christianity has been a little unique. I say that with a little bit of hesitancy because whose path into Christianity or into their own spiritual path is not unique. Raise your hand if you have a unique spiritual path. <laughs> so many of us do, especially in this time. Very few of us have kind of followed this traditional path. And for me, one of the things that I learned about Christianity um, was that different paths have been a part of the story since the beginning. And that was so eye-opening for me when I first started learning as an adult about Christianity. Because as a kid, I thought that there was one path, and if I wasn't a part of that path, then I was either going to burn in a fiery hell or, you know, who knew. But I, it was so freeing and liberating to know 
that there has been diversity of thought and practice within Christianity since the days of Jesus, which is following in a diversity of thought and belief that's been present in Judaism for so long. So that um, created a lot more space for me in Christianity. So um, I'm gonna, I'm, I could just go on and on, so I'm going to look at my watch here. Um, the followers, so some top tens. Number one, if you're a Christian, then you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That is where there's a lot of diversity of thought and practice, especially in my tradition as the Christian church, in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we allow diversity of thought of who was Jesus? What was his life? What was most important in his story? Was the most important part the way that he lived his life or the fact that he died and rose again? There's, you know, these are different. And if you've been in Christian circles, you know that there's different angles that people take within that um, core principle of you're following Jesus. For me, It means to follow in the ways of Jesus, the ways that Jesus lived his life. As a Christian, for me, I am less concerned with, do you believe? Um, There was a big controversial story in the New York Times a week ago or two weeks ago that Serene Jones, the president of Union Seminary, um, you know, said she's not terribly concerned about a literal resurrection, and people whoo, really got upset about that. So I, I would name that there's been different views within Christianity on that. Um, the second is that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God on earth. And this taps into also an understanding of the Trinity, which is super confusing for people who aren't Christian, and maybe super confusing for many people who are Christian, right? <laughs> For me, I love the Trinity. I'm kind of a weird person. But the reason why I love the Trinity is because it holds that there's God in relationship is God. That God is this multiplicity of ways of being and that that's how we are called to be in relationship and in ways that are creating, in ways that are sustaining, in ways that are are moving us forward, that this together is God, that God isn't one. I mean, God is one, that this is all one, that you don't have to have one stagnant, non-moving thing to be God. And for me, that's what the Trinity tells me, is that God is in relationship and calls us to relationship. The next fun thing about Christianity is that it's full of mysteries and unexpected things. And this speaks to the world to me that, uh, you know, there's a virgin birth, that there's Jesus walks on water, turns water into wine, makes, you know, heals the sick, uh, transforms the world, overcomes death. This, this inspires this magical um, thinking that moves us beyond the expected. And rather than worrying about the literal, you know, possibility of miracles, I really don't care. <laughs> I love the call into the unexpected and the impossible being possible. That is inspiring and hope filled and calls me to live my life differently because there are the the impossible is possible that's what i see in christianity 
Another piece is the four books of the, the first four books of the New Testament are four gospels that are each different angles of the same story. And that there was an intentional move when the, the texts of the Bible were canonized to not merge those and roll those into one clean, neat story with a bow. I love that. I love that there's this complexity and these different angles of viewing the same story right from the beginning and very intentional. And to me, that really counters a way of thinking of this is what it is and you're in or you're out. Like that, you know, that's not been a part of the history or the teaching of of Christianity from those early stories. People saw it from different angles. And I love the nuance when you start to peel apart the four gospels and you start to see these different threads or the different ways the author saw the story and what their cultural context was and why they saw it. All right. Um, okay. Um, the next part, um, and this is in your, your sheet, some just of the basic statistics, 31% of the world's population is Christian. Christians are still the largest um, religion, though Islam is going to overtake Christianity um, if the rates of change keep going. Um, and there's statistics on that. I can't remember if it's like 2050, um, maybe some, maybe Ishmael, maybe you know that, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody can Google it. Um, so, but 70% of the people in the United States are Christian. And a book that I really like is called The Atheist Delusion. And it, the title's so like evocative, right? Um, but one of his premises is that even in the United States, even atheists, that we are so seeped in a Christian ethic and story that it's assumed whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And so um, while we, and I am, you know, I, I spend my life working for religious pluralism and respect of religious difference and understanding the particularities of our different religion, but it's really helpful for, like, I, I think it's fascinating to peel back and see the ways that Christian morals and ethics that were founded in, in um, have seeped into so many parts of our life that we don't even realize, for better or worse. Um, and so that's interesting to me about Christianity. Um, where am I at on time? Three minutes. Okay, awesome. Um, now, those, those are first like five kind of factual types of things. My favorite five things are the second five. One, I love the radical, justice-seeking, table-turning, healing, liberating Jesus. And that is, um, you know, inspiring. And when you read the, the Gospels, it's like, this is craziness. And, and so, um, you know, controversial in a way that has been watered down so much in our Christian culture in the United States. And so I really enjoy spending time um, reading those stories and just being like, man, we are called to so much more in the ways of liberation and healing and feeding the sick and, and how we live our life. And that brings me to the second one that I love, and that's an embodied God. For me in Christianity, I love that God came in the form of a vulnerable baby um, who was born on the outskirts of town to a young mother, unwed and pregnant, 
and unwelcome and that that is that God came to be in the messiness as the lowest and the most marginalized and that is just I get chills talking about it because I I you know that is for me honestly there are times as a woman and being so frustrated with the stupidity of Christianity in the United States and some of the harm that we do um, that I'll ask, why am I still a Christian? <laughs> and that's why, because of the embodied God. And I, that is what I want to follow. And what I love is this God that comes as a marginalized into the messiness in a body. I love the embodiedness and that we are called to physically live our faith in how we interact with people, how we look into people's eyes, how we move through the world, how we vote, <laughs> how we how we work for change in our community, how we are a neighbor, that embodied way. Um, the third way is I appreciate the ways that Christianity, I, I often say is Christian or is religion good or bad? Both. Religion is good and bad. Religion has been used to oppress. It's been used, and Christianity has been used to justify slavery and oppression and violence and crusades and um, white supremacy and and Christian and homophobia and Christianity has been used to justify all of these things. Christianity has also been a primary driver of the calls for liberation in each of those things as well. Christianity was behind in, in moving in abolition, in the civil rights movement, in the women's rights movement, in the, in the LGBTQ equality movement. There are strong Christian threads working for liberation, reaching into our stories and our texts. And I really appreciate that. Um, okay, two more quick things. The next one is communion. And, and I'd be happy to talk about this one more. I, as especially as disciples is my denomination and communion is a central tenet. And for me, that's because we are called to the, be the body of Christ and the bread and the cup model our oneness and our separateness and our, that, that God nourishes us for living. And that communion is such a, a beautiful symbol for me. It is a symbol for me, but it's a beautiful symbol. Um, and then the final one is unconditional love and grace. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite words is regardless, that we are called to love regardless, regardless of who someone is, who they love, what they've done, what crime they've committed, how they live their life, what they believe, we are called to love regardless. And what does that mean? And what does that look like to love regardless? So, that's it. Thanks. Okay. So, this is like speed dating, by the way. This is, we're going to keep, keep going. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to be giving away some free swag from Seedstock Brewery in between. And if you, if you can't wear this, by the way, if it's not your size, you can give it to somebody, you know, as an act of kindness. So, in two words, what... Is, uh, what is saving, not, not if it's saving Amanda's faith, What's the, why, why is she still within Christianity? Two words. She said it about five minutes ago. Who's got that? Two words. It starts with an E. Embody God. All right, here you go. Seed stock shirt for you, Elizabeth. And our next speaker is a rabbi. Uh, my friends always say, Ryan, you're a, 
it's true. I'm a wannabe Jew. I really am. Okay. I'm just saying this. Uh, I don't know why my parents were Christian. I should be, I should be Jewish. Uh, Rabbi Brian Feld, we, uh, uh, we met a while back and then, uh, we, we had lunch, uh, several months ago. He is, uh, the founder of Judaism Your Way. Fantastic organization. I have been, anybody been to their high holy services at Botanic Gardens, by the way? I highly recommend it. I've taken my oldest daughter. I've also been to a Passover Seder with his community. Uh, this, this guy is uh, shaking up Denver in ways that I think are really good for the world. So, Rabbi Brian Feld, you are up to talk about Judaism in 15 minutes. <laughs> By the way, th- this is why we have the handouts on the, on the Religion 101s. And uh, as, as we're going, write down your questions because we're going to collect them after our third speaker. Good morning. So. Um I just love what Ryan just said, wannabe Jew. I mean, he, he, he started by talking about shalom and translating it as peace. Actually, there's... It's, no, it's totally true, but it's not the whole truth. So when we think of peace, we think of like Pax, the Latin Pax, peace and quiet, pacify. But the word shalom comes from the Hebrew word shalem, which means wholeness, completeness. So there's a peace you can have by suppressing, pacifying, excluding, and there's a a peace that you can have when everything belongs. Um, One of the great Hasidic teachers, um, and Hasidism is a kind of an ecstatic revival form of Judaism from the 18th and 19th centuries, said that the purpose of creation was for God's wholeness to be perceived from the opposite and to be experienced from the opposite perspective. From our diversity, from our individuality, from all the ways in which we are ignorant and um, isolated from each other. From, From that perspective, if we can all cohere and grow and evolve to perceive God's wholeness. That is the purpose of creation. That is shalom. So I just, Ryan, I just wanted to add that, and with full respect, um, and I was moved by your quote, um, a quotation of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the great um, Jewish spiritual figures of the 20th century. Um, So my understanding of our assignment, so I think it's a little... Um, was to talk about our tradition from the perspective of social justice. So that's most of what I'm going to share with you. If you have specific questions about other aspects of Judaism, please ask. Um, I think we're all going to be up here afterwards, and and I'll be around during lunch as well. So um, I just wanted to share a couple of things about Judaism. First of all, is there anyone here who's Jewish? All right, welcome. Shabbat shalom. Um, anyone here who is, whose beloved is Jewish, who has Jews in their family, you know, wonderful friends who are Jewish? Okay, so, so good. So there's something here for a lot of you, and your neighbors might be Jewish, and your fellow citizens are Jewish. So, um, so this is, this is, hopefully this will be time well spent. Um, one of the things, and it came up, you know, for me listening to, to, to Amanda speak, and Amanda and I have known each other for several years, and we're allies, and we're friends, and we have deep respect for each other. Um, and we've been really, I think, you know, she's been helpful to me. I hope I've been helpful to her as well. Um, is that it's almost in this culture impossible to think about Judaism 
outside of a relationship or in relationship to Christianity. And so I want to share with you a definition of Judaism that Jews never use, but it's a definition that I've come up with using Christian language, the language of the Gospel of John. God so loved the world that God gave God's only Torah so as to be in covenantal relationship with humanity. So that's Christian language for describing the passion of Judaism, that at the heart of Judaism is that we are in relationship, just as you talked about the Trinity, that relationship, covenantal relationship is at the core of Jewish spirituality, and what we call the Torah is our evolving expression of what it means to walk in covenantal relationship with the God of our understanding, and that can be to walk with um, humanity, to walk with all beings, to walk with the earth. So that's basically what I'll say about Judaism in general. If you've got other questions, as I said, I'd be delighted to speak to them, but I want to, I guess... I want to say um, just a few things about um, Judaism and social action. First of all, um, of all peoples, um, of all religions in this country, um, Jews tend to be the most liberal or progressive. Um, In 2008 and in 2012, around 75% of Jews voted for, for Obama. And a similar percentage voted for Hillary, and no other religion comes anywhere near close to that. Um, And I just, you know, um, it's important to know that um, there is a very, very strong progressive, I mean, not all Jews, because, you know, there are are some Jews in in, in Trump's cabinet, but... um, but, Judaism tends to be a very, you know, by and large, progress, liberal, if not progressive, um, home for for people of faith and people of no faith. So a few basic principles that undergird social action, social justice within Judaism. The first is today. I said Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat is the original Hebrew word of which Sabbath is the English translation. Shabbat means rest that there is an inherent, Shabbat is the only holiday mentioned in the Ten Commandments. And in the second version of the Ten Commandments, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5, the description of Shabbat and the explanation, the rationale for Shabbat is that we were slaves in Egypt and therefore we know the oppression of being a slave and so one day a week, we shall know freedom, and not just freedom for ourselves, but freedom for, for anyone who may work for us as well. And all the way down to freedom, non-work for, for the animals that work for us as well. So um, Shabbat is an expression of, um, like, whatever our work situations, whatever uh, oppressive relationships occur, you know, because of, you know, the maldistribution of, 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 of financial resources, of wealth in our society, Shabbat is where we take a break and every human being has the, the dignity of rest. I mean, that's where the weekend came from. Um, there's another principle um, in Hebrew, B'Tselem Elohim, which means the human being is created in the image of God. So there's an inherent human dignity. There's another principle um, expressed in the 16th chapter of Deuteronomy. Um, 
Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, which means justice, justice you shall pursue. And so the, the commentaries ask, why is the word justice repeated? And they say the first, well, I mean, pro- probably the real reason is for emphasis. But um, that's, that's not good enough. <laughs> um, so we say you shall pursue justice. And the second mention is, so that refers to the end. That's what you must pursue. The second mention of justice has to do with the means. You shall pursue justice justly. And um, the other thing is that Judaism is a spirituality in which there are, you know, when you, when you are in a covenantal relationship, there are inherent obligations, things that you must do to maintain that relationship and things that you must not do. You know, regardless of whether you believe in a supreme being that commands, the relationship itself has a commanding voice. And so every commandment in, 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 um, in Jewish religion, every mitzvah, has a time and a place. When it's the time to do it, you're supposed to do it. You're not supposed to overdo it. You're supposed to do it when it's appropriate, with one exception, and that's justice. Justice, you're supposed to pursue. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. You're supposed to find opportunities to seek out justice. And that is a, a fundamental principle of Jewish spirituality to the extent that our word for charity, which comes from a Latin word, caritas, which means to care, beautiful concept. The Jewish word for charity is sedaka, which comes from the word tzedek, 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 tirdof, which means justice. That charity is understood Jewishly as an act of justice as correcting the, um, the manifestation of injustice in society. And finally, um, the, um, the other principle I wanted to share with you about Judaism and social justice is a quote, a very famous quote. It's so famous that a lot of people don't know it came from a rabbi who lived a generation before Jesus. Um, one of the earliest rabbis, his name was Rabbi Hillel. And he said, he taught, If I am not for myself, who will be for me? But if I am for myself only, what am I? And if not now, when? Anyone heard that before? Yeah, yeah, okay. So that's where it it comes from. The first century before the common era of Judaism at a time when Judaism was evolving, radically evolving under Roman rule from a biblical religious civilization into something that was post-biblical. And I can say more about that if you're interested, um, but that will take us away from the main theme of our gathering. So there are stories in the biblical books known as the Torah that offer seeds of a vision of a just world that Jews take very seriously. One, in Genesis Abraham pleads with God to save the condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, In Jewish interpretation, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a sexual sin. The sin was refusal to take in the stranger, refusal to be hospitable. And there are many rabbinic legends of people who defied that and the ends that they met. So um, hospitality is a foundational value in Judaism, and Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was that they were the opposite of that. So Abraham's argument with God is, shall not the judge of all the earth act justly? So Judaism has nothing but the highest praise for Abraham and his standing up to what God said God wanted to do. 
And the early rabbis learned how to pray the central and most intimate prayer in the morning prayer called the Amidah. They learn how to pray this prayer from Abraham's model of standing up to God. Or we might say standing up to the way things are. So that's one story, one very foundational narrative um, for Judaism's relationship to protest, to standing up for justice. Another story near the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph, who is Abraham and Sarah's great-grandson, establishes a system for storing and rationing food so that the Egyptians will not starve during a prolonged period of famine. And so Judaism learns from this to use political authority to protect the lives of all members of society. And finally, the paradigmatic story in the Torah, the exodus from Egypt. It begins with the experience of slavery, of oppression in Egypt, and it teaches us the pain of oppression and urges us to use that experience to be a reminder not to inflict oppression on others. 36 times in the Torah, in various ways, there is some mention of the exodus in terms of treating the stranger. Do not oppress the stranger, for you know the hearts of the stranger, having yourselves been strangers in the land of Egypt. All right, so how am I doing for time? Two minutes? Okay. So, let's see. I think then, the other thing I wanted to share is going to take more than two minutes. So, um, yeah, I have nothing more to say right now. Can, any questions? Wait, wait. Okay. Then, um, thanks for your attention. Shabbat Shalom. I know how this group is with questions, by the way, and that's going to be another 20 minutes. So, yeah. So you'll have, by the way, questions, please write them down. And after our next speaker, we are going to uh, collect those questions and moderate a great panel. Eric, will you do me a favor over there? Eric, will you grab one of those t-shirts, por favor? And then this next question is about one rabbi. Eric will throw you the t-shirt if you get this right. Hand in the air. Okay. So this is a seed stock swag again, who provided the beer. We just want to thank, keep thanking them throughout the day. And this rabbi was a, uh, a rabbi that was quoted before the time of Jesus. In one word, ooh, you, you can't all say it at once. I, I mean, kindergartners are better than that. Okay. I saw Terry's hand go up. So Terry gets the t-shirt. There you go. So our next speaker, and, and so by the way, Throughout this time, because there's a, there's a lot going on, a, a, a lot of words, you can use the restroom anytime. I know it's weird if you're like, can I get up right now? You can get up. You can grab some snacks. You can get a beer. Pretend like this is your family gathering, and so you can kind of come as you please. So now you have permission to do that. People are like, half of you are going to go to the restroom in just two seconds. Um, our next speaker is... Uh, if you didn't figure it out, there's paper in the middle of your table or, and or post-it notes. That's where you can write your questions. Just wanted to make that clear. Okay. We have uh, one more before the panel on Islam. Ishmael Akbulut is president of the uh, Mosaic Multicultural Foundation. Is it, did I get that right? Multicultural Mosaic Foundation. And he was with us, I think it was last Dece- December, Yeah. And uh, also, just a, a, a pleasure to be around. The, the podcast that we recorded with Ishmael, I would say a lot of friends who are not in Denver who heard that were extremely appreciative for your words. Uh, this man is extremely kind and compassionate and loving, and he's going to come up and he's going to try to talk about Islam in 15 minutes. And then 
what's great about this is that you'll, you'll have about 45 minutes to talk to all of them together. And without further ado, here he is, Ishmael. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with so many friends, Amanda, Rabbi Brian, and others. Um, so Shabbat Shalom to all the Jewish friends. And um, by the way, are there any Muslims in the room? No? Great. I can make, I can make things up now. So. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> okay. Alaikum um, salam. Thank you. Um, so f- f- about me personally, I'm a Muslim and um, similar to, for instance, Amanda or Rabbi Brian, um, in Islam there is a diversity, a different views, different interpretations uh, within Muslim communities. You see Muslims around the world from different countries, ethnic groups and cultures. They all get together and they have similarities and they have differences. About me personally, um, I identify as a Sunni Muslim who also is Sufism-inspired. Sufism is the spiritual side of Islam, is the mystical side of Islam. And I will say a few words during this presentation about where um, there might be a few differences between um, orthodoxy and um, Sufism, for instance. Okay, so the word Islam is a lot used in the media and the word Muslim. And um, some people do not understand what is the difference between Islam and Muslim. Islam is the the name of the religion, and Muslim is the person who practices the religion of Islam. Okay, what does Islam mean, literally? It comes from the same root as Shalom. Um, It comes from the root Salam, Arabic, and um, Hebrew are both Semitic languages, and I don't have to repeat um, the, um, the definition of what shalom or salam means, but um, it comes from the root of peace. Okay, so Islam, the word Islam has um, in itself the, uh, the word peace. And Muslim is the person who submits to peace, who submits himself to peace. And um, people ask, is it Muslim, Muslim or Muslim? So it is like tomato or tomato. So it, um, you, you can use both words. However, Muslims themselves prefer to be called Muslims and not Muslims. Because in Arabic, Muslim means the oppressed. So Muslims do not want to be called oppressed. So if you want to talk to a Muslim, it would be better to call him a Muslim and not a Muslim. So, um, the religion of Islam was introduced to humanity about five or six hundred years after Jesus um, by Prophet Muhammad. So, he was born in 571 in today's Saudi Arabia. And people think that it is, some people think it is a new religion that was introduced to humanity. However, for Muslims, Islam is not a new religion. Islam is the continuation of the Abrahamic faith traditions. So starting with Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam. So why did God um, introduce humanity to Islam then, if it's um, the same message as Christianity and Judaism? Muslims believe that um, previous messages were um, perhaps in some way changed by humans. So God sent new prophets um, throughout history, such as uh, Moses, Abraham, um, Noah, and Muhammad, they came to re- reaffirm and to confirm the previous messages. 
And God, according to Islam, sent one about 124,000 prophets to humanity um, throughout history, uh, with Muhammad being the last one to spread the message of unity and um, believing in, in, him, in him. So for Muslims, um, there is six pillars of belief. So Muslims believe, mainstream Muslims believe in six pillars. The first one, um, as a Muslim, as a mainstream Muslim, you have to believe in one God, in the existence of one God. And in the Quran, God is being, so the Quran is the holy scripture of the Muslims, and um, it is the literal word of God. So for Christians, Jesus is the word of God. For Muslims, the Quran is the word of God, not Muhammad. Muhammad is a prophet. He is not the word of God. And according to Islam, according to, uh, in the Quran itself, in the scripture, um, God describes himself with 99 attributes, 99 names. And you can find them in the Quran. They are uh, something like the most beautiful, the most compassionate, um, the, the most powerful, and so on. And Sufis, for instance, they get together and they recite and chant the names of God so that the names of God will be reflected in their hearts. They, they try to clean their hearts and, um, and reflect these beautiful attributes um, of God in this, um, in this life. They, they say that when you chant, your heart is being cleaned, and then, um, then God can shine through your heart into humanity. The second one is believing in angels. Muslims believe in angels, similar to Christians and Jewish people, such as um, Archangel Gabriel and so on. The difference between angels and humans is that humans have a free will and they can disobey God. Angels, however, they don't disobey, disobey God. They are always at the same level. However, human beings have a free will and they can get above angels and way below angels and become very bad human beings. The third one, believing in prophets. Muslims have to believe in all prophets, starting from Prophet Abraham, um, Moses, Abraham, Noah, and so on, till um, Muhammad. Jesus in Islam is also a prophet. So Jesus is one of the six greatest prophets mentioned in the Quran. In the Quran, there are only, I believe, 23 prophets mentioned by name, and Jesus is one of them. And for instance, in the Quran, the most mentioned prophet is not Muhammad. It's not Jesus, it is Moses. The most mentioned prophet in the Quran is Moses. And Muhammad is mentioned, I believe, only a few times. The fourth belief are the holy scriptures. Muslims have to believe in the holy scriptures, such as the Quran, and all the holy scriptures revealed before the Quran, such as the New Testament and the Old Testament. Muslims regard the Old Testament and the New Testament both as holy scriptures, divine scriptures sent by God. However, there is disputes among Muslims about um, how authentic the, um, today's scriptures are. Have they been changed by human, uh, humans or not? So this is a debate among Muslims as well. Um, the fifth belief is believing in the hereafter. So Muslims believe there is going to be hereafter after death. And there is going to be a dual destiny, either heaven or hell. And it is completely up to the mercy of God where somebody is going to end up. Uh, I'm a Muslim and I cannot say that I will go to heaven. I don't know. It is completely up to my actions, my belief, and how uh, and God's mercy and the judgment day after um, 
after my death. And so for Muslims to say that, for instance, Christians or Jews or anybody will go to hell is completely nonsense because it's completely up to God. I cannot judge. I cannot take the role of God, which is probably very good. Otherwise, human beings would make a lot of mistakes, which they're already doing. (laughs) And sixth is um, free will and divine will. Muslims believe that human beings have a free will, so I can choose, I can decide, I can choose to stand here and to speak. This is my free will. But there are things in my life that I cannot choose. For instance, my parents. I wish I could sometimes, but <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I cannot. So this is given by God. This is the divine will. Okay, see, so these were the six um, beliefs that a mainstream Muslim has to believe in. Now, um, a Muslim, what does a Muslim have to do in, um, to be a mainstream Muslim? So there is, the f- there is five pillars of Islam. You may have heard about them. These are basically the actions that define a Muslim. So first of all, the declaration of faith. Muslims have to say and to believe in their hearts that there is no God but God and that Prophet Muhammad is his messenger. If somebody believes and says that, this person becomes a Muslim. So there is no, um, such as in other traditions, a confirmation or reformation or, or um, bat mitzvah. Or so there is no concept of entering the religion. It is completely between God and that person. If a person believes in that, this person becomes a Muslim. The second one, praying. Muslims have to pray five times a day. Early in the morning, around noontime, afternoon, evening, and late night. And throughout um, lifetime, every human, every Muslim, after puberty, if he or she is not ill, in a, a mentally, um, mentally well, he has or she has to pray five times a day. The third one is fasting. So Muslims have to fast um, for a month, uh, for about 29 or 30 days, from dawn to sundown um, throughout the year, in the month of Ramadan. No eating. No drinking, um, not, no b- bad behavior. By the way, Muslims should not behave bad anytime, but it is explicitly important not to do that um, during the month of Ramadan because this can impact um, the good deeds that you might earn for, um, for fasting. And by the way, tomorrow or on Monday, the fasting month is going to start for Muslims, so we will be fasting throughout the day for about a month. Um, so the next one is giving alms to needy people. Muslims have to give 2.5% of their wealth to needy people. So it is not 2.5% of my income, um, it is of my wealth. So if I, have, if I have at the end of the year this money for disposal, um, I have to give 2.5% of that money um, of my luxury basically to needy people. Do I have to give it to an Islamic institution? No. I can give it to educational institutions. I can give it to needy people in my community. I don't have to give it to Muslims. I have to um, give, sacrifice this money for um, uh, the human good. And, it, and this word comes from the same root as the Jewish word sadaqah um, in Islam. It's the same root. It's the same word, actually. And we believe that th- giving the 2.5% to the needy people will actually create justice in this world. Um, last but not least, pilgrimage. Muslims um, have to go once in their lifetimes 
to pilgrimage to the place where Prophet Muhammad was born and where he passed away, in today's Saudi Arabia, Mecca, and Medina. If somebody is healthy and has the financial means, that person has to go to that place for a pilgrimage. So for me personally, being Muslim, um, what is important for me as being Muslim is I don't believe as a Muslim that the uppercase M Muslim is important. So if you identify as a Muslim with an uppercase M, for me that is not important. For me, a Muslim with a lowercase M, which means all the values a Muslim stands for are way more important than just, being, just saying that I am a Muslim, I identify as a Muslim, if that makes sense. In my faith tradition, um, diversity is very important, and diversity in Islam is actually part of the creation. It's part of why God created this world. God says, as a purpose of creating this world, for instance, he says, I was an artist, an unknown artist, and I created this world to be known by the outside. Then he continues in the Quran, for instance, he says, if I wanted to, I could have created all humanity in the same way, but I created you differently so that you may get together and know one another. This is one of the. Uh, this is written in the Quran. This is the saying of, um, of God of Himself. Um, last but not least, what I also appreciate in my religion is the concept of making mistakes. God says in the Quran, "If you were a people that wouldn't make any mistakes, would not commit any sins, I would have removed you with a people that would make mistakes." Making mistakes is part of creation. We will we will all make mistakes. God created us that way. But what is important is how we respond to our mistakes. Are we, do we repeat the mistakes? Do we learn from the mistakes? This is, um, in an Islamic way, how God looks at a good human being. Because we will all make mistakes. There is nobody who can say most likely that he or she did not make any mistakes and will not make any mistakes. Okay, thank you. Growing up in the Christian tradition, we were always taught to give 10%. Talk to a certain elder or lead pastor, and they'll tell you it's gross, not net. Oh, my goodness. So the percentage on wealth, by the way, in Islam is what percentage? Hands in the air, hands in the air right here. Percentage. 2.5%. You get the seed stock T-shirt. I don't have a free hand. Here we go. Hey. That's worth converting alone, I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, now we're going to have uh, all three of our first speakers back up here. And this, this time, I always love the Q&A time because I feel like it brings out uh, just more organic, authentic stuff that's not prepared and yet it's already instilled and, to use Amanda's words, embodied within you already. So Amanda and Brian Ishmael are going to come up. I'm going to have some questions for them. Uh, we are on social media, by the way, at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram and Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. Uh, throughout the day, if you're taking pictures or you're, maybe there's a quote from one of the speakers or a thought that you have, uh, please post that, tag us, and then hashtag, by the way, hashtag is this. The young people know what I'm talking about. It's ailed pound sign, ailtruist, A-L-E, truist. Just hashtag that and tag Brew Theology when you post your stuff. So, y'all ready to rock and roll? All right. Again, there, uh, there's food over here, restrooms, beer. A lot of you have been patient and you've been sitting for the last, I don't know, hour or so. So feel free to get up, move around, and let's uh, let's relax and have some fun. <laughs>